Hi, this is John Diamond, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. So you were saying that you're going to Nashville in, in a few weeks. So. I, yeah, I'm going down in another couple of weeks. Uh, just uh, working. I work with Colin Linden. Right. I, we've worked together for, I'm going to say 30 years. Maybe it's 28. 28 wow. years. And uh, he just moved his studio into a new building he had built in his backyard. And uh, we just did an album there a couple of weeks ago with a girl from Spain. And... Uh, but we're going to go back and uh, do a little bit more recording, and we have a gig down in town. How did you hook up with, hook up's probably not the right word, but Gary, when I talked to Gary Craig, he told me about how he met um, Colin, and all of a sudden that became this yeah. 30-year relationship. Yeah. How did you connect up with? Well, I, would, I had been touring with Katie Lang for three years, and... Uh, that tour finished up and I wanted to, I was living out by the airport in Toronto and I wanted to move downtown and uh, Ben Mink was in the band with KD and he had an apartment uh, at Bathurst and Bloor basically and uh, he said, uh, oh, if you're looking for a place, uh, Kenny Sprackman, who owned the Horseshoe, had an apartment there too. And he said, Kenny's moving out of his place. And he says, uh, the landlords are great. And uh, if you want to move into that building, that'd be really cool. <laughs> and uh, so I moved down there, moved in to that apartment. And um, Ben was producing demos for Colin Linden. Oh. And so, you know, one day there's a knock at the door and Ben's just up two, two flights of stairs. And he says, uh, bring your bass up, uh, Colin's here and I want you to put some bass on a track and that's so that's how I met Colin was through Ben Mink okay, so what do you think it was about your playing or what was it to him that that was the beginning of this long-term relationship I mean I don't know if you know but well I'm not sure you know I think what it was was that my playing was rooted in country Maybe even, you might even say older country, because right. that's what I first started playing. And Colin, uh, Colin's blues style is very rural. I've always thought of him as a, a rural blues player, mm-hmm. like a country blues. Right. Was what he's, you know, he's fantastic at a lot of things. Yeah. But give him an acoustic guitar and a slide and, you know, country blues from the 30s and the 20s. It's like, he owns that stuff. Mm-hmm. And even though I really hadn't played any blues at that point uh but i think there's something about the style of that bass playing that it's it's uh i think it fit in with colin's style really well did you know like did you feel it yourself that yeah we we had a pretty good chemistry right from the word go it felt like i mean i sort of it i don't i didn't really know what i was doing but it didn't it didn't seem to be a problem because <laughs> it seemed to just work and how, mu- how much studio work had you done at that point? Uh, I had done some, probably. So I met Colin in 98, was it? No, 80, uh, 90, 1990. So I had started to do some studio work in the 80s, and, and uh, 
you know, I had played on Katie's Absolute Torch and Twang before mm-hmm. that. And when I listen to that record now, it sounds like I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I hadn't really got my stuff together yet, you know. But uh, so I had done some and I'd done a fair bit of country stuff. But when I started with Colin, that was a start of recording blue stuff for sure. Must be great to have that relationship that, I mean, you obviously didn't know when you first met him that this would be a 30-year relationship, but yeah. that has led to so many different projects. Yeah, it sure did. It's, it's, uh, it's turned to be, for sure, my longest relationship with somebody in this business that, you know, so many great, I mean, I got so many great things from Colin. I mean, mm-hmm. moving on to uh, Bruce Coburn for all those years. That was all through Colin. Right. And uh, just a lot of great records we so made. So does he ever say, I like your playing, let's work together? Or does he just call you whenever he needs you? And that's like, at what point did you know that you're kind of working with Colin? Well, when, when I started working with him, it wasn't really, we weren't recording, you know, albums all the time. It was actually, we were like gigging. It was a lot more like club stuff traveling back and forth across Canada. And uh, he was producing stuff then. And then I, I started to play on a lot of the stuff he produced around that time. But really, we were still kind of flogging it on the road a fair bit, you know. Which is, I guess, the foundation of where you are yeah. today, right? Yeah, I mean, and it was, for me, it was such a it was such a killer band because it was Gary Craig on drums and Colin, who's phenomenal. And we had Richard Bell on keyboards who, mm. you know, came from Janis Joplin's band. So it was like, I remember the first gig I did with Colin was on Queen Street at Stratinger's, I think it was called, which was almost, almost the beaches, almost the East End where I, where I live. And I just remember the first night in the, on stage thinking, how the hell did I get in this band? It's like, because Richard was just like, he was a force, you know. But does he officially say, this is the band? Yeah, he did at that point. Yeah, that was his band Right. uh, at that point. And it stayed that way, well, till this day. We lost Richard Bell, who died 10 years ago, but we've never replaced him. (laughs) (laughs) Colin can't bring himself to have another keyboard player for most stuff, you know. In the studio, it's different, but we've been playing live as a trio ever since. I should introduce you. John Diamond, bassist for who works with Colin, which means you've worked with Bruce Coburn, Katie Lang, you've worked with Blackie in the Rodeo. Blackie, yeah. Stephen um, Fearing. Yeah. Um, and done tons of studio work. I'm just going to go back and ask you how you first got into music. Or what was it like growing up in Kenmore? Kerwood. Kerwood? Kerwood was where I grew oh, okay. up. okay. Sorry. I grew up on a farm outside of, well, I grew up halfway between London and Sarnia. If you draw a straight line and pick on the a farm. Of on a farm, yeah. I was, so your parents I, were I was a farm kid, yeah. And I actually, I actually farmed for a while before I did this full time. I was, uh, well, so so back to the start. I mean, my mom made me take piano lessons like most parents did, and right. I hated them for <laughs> How, what, five what or age six did years. You, did you start? I think about five or six years old. Okay. Pretty young. My mom played piano, and my mom sang in the church. She was a good singer. And uh, so I did a, quite a few years of piano. And then I still remember the day that my one piano teacher said, you know, she called my mom in who was, you know, waiting in the car <laughs> to drive me into the lesson. She goes, you know, I think John's got talent, 
uh, and he's going to be good at music, but I don't think it's going to be piano. <laughs> so it's like, so then I thought, okay, I want to play a guitar. So I, I got an acoustic guitar. But did you like music? I mean, did you, did what I you really, say make sense? Yeah, yeah. I felt like I, I, I did want to play something, and I felt like it probably wasn't going to be piano. And uh, so then I got a guitar, and uh, took some lessons on guitar for a while. But our families, there was a lot of musicians, there was a lot of music in the families. There was no professional musicians, but there was a lot of, all my aunts and cousins and everybody played something. Right. So there was a lot of music around. And uh, so then it was acoustic guitar for a while. And then uh, we wanted to put a band together when we were at about grade nine. So there was me, my cousin played drums. He had two other people he knew that played guitar. And so at our first practice to put the band together, there was a drummer and three guitar players. <laughs> and, and I was the shittiest guitar player. So they said, you better buy a bass. That, on that day, the yeah. first practice. So like, yeah, very first practice. I think it was the first practice. Close to. What, were you play, what kind of music were you playing? We played it was stuff on the radio. I mean, I can't... More rock than country? Yeah, you know what? It was half and half. Okay. You know, it, we ended up... That band ended up playing dances and weddings and legion halls and all that sort of stuff. So, you know what? It was half, con- it was, it was half the country channel and half the pop channel, you know? And how did you feel when they said, you better pick up the bass? I realized that I was the shittiest guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was kind of... it was. Actually, it was it was great because I thought, oh, okay, I might still get to stay in the band if I go buy a bass. <laughs> so I ran and bought, I think, a $40 bass, which was, you know, horrible. And how, was, how easy was it to learn the bass? Um, you know what? I guess it wasn't... I didn't find it hard. I mean, I had a good ear. I, I basically play by ear mostly, I think. That's why the piano lessons never... I, I never was a great reader, and I always found that very difficult. But with the bass, I just found I just turned on the... put the record on, and I could f- I could hear what the bass was doing, and I seemed to have not too much trouble to figure out what, what was going on, you know? Wow, really? So I just was self-taught on bass, yeah. But it's a difficult instrument to kind of decipher, like to isolate and figure out the notes. Yeah, sometimes it is, yeah. But... Uh, I was really drawn to it, and I uh, I liked the the role of the bass in the band. You know, can you describe what that role was to you back then? You know what? It felt like a, it felt like it was a lot of power. It felt like you you had power because <laughs> you know uh, I remember the first couple of songs that when I when I was getting into the bass, I remember the first couple that really turned me on, and one was. Uh, Bang a Gong by T-Rex because it was a great, great bass. Yeah, when yeah. the bass comes in in the intro, it's like, it's really cool, I thought. And uh, the, uh, oh, Dragon the Line, Tommy Shandell. Was it Tommy? Sh- Tommy Shannon. Shannon? Shandell. Tommy. I'm forgetting the name. But I know it's the Dragon song. the Line. And yeah, it had a great, great bass song. part, yeah. too. And it was like, the whole I found song those, is great bass. Yeah, part, the whole it? song is from beginning to end as a riff, you know? So I was. I enjoyed it because it felt like you had a lot of power because you could, if you quit playing, everything gets kind of quiet, <laughs> you know? And uh, so I don't know, it was those kind of, that kind of stuff drew me into it. 
for sure. I don't know what it is about the bass. I mean, but there are certain riffs that I hear that just blow me away. When I hear Into the Mystic. Yeah. And I hear that bass line. Yeah. I just think, oh my God. Like that to me is bass at a totally different level. I don't expect, I don't think that that's complicated, but there's something that's just. It's not complicated, but it takes an imagination to come up, you know. Great yeah. bass hooks are can propel a tune, but uh, and they're not usually hard. But you got to have the imagination to come up with it, right? So right. Like, writing hooks is I always have such respect for people that play and and can come up with that stuff because it's it's not easy, you know. So who influenced you back then? Other than those two songs, what bass player did you? You know what? I didn't know who was on those records really. Yeah. It was long before the internet. It was hard yeah. to find. You know, I remember those two records that I mentioned. I just had the 45. So, right. you know, you got you got no information at <laughs> yeah. all. You know, now it's just you just got a couple of clicks away from knowing everything. But what a little after that, when I started listening to stuff and buying LPs, I was re- it was really early on when I thought that I wanted to play on records. It was like. I was kind of an audio nut when I was a kid, you know, I would save all my money up and buy a better needle for the record player and buy a better set of headphones. And so I I was really struck with audio and good sound. And then I started listening to a lot of records, buying stuff like uh, Jackson Brown, The Eagles. And I was really kind of into that California country, West Coast country stuff. And, uh, I got really turned on to the session guys. And I remember I would just buy records. I would buy records more by who was playing on them than actually who the artist was. And mainly bass players or Yeah, I, I was a huge fan of Lee Sklar, Leland Sklar. I'm you, still, do you still follow out there. his Facebook? Yeah. <laughs> I know. When he doesn't get booted off. <laughs> He's pretty outrageous. I love him. <laughs> yeah, he would, he would be an interesting person to meet, I would think. I met him a few years ago at the Edmonton Folk Fest. Oh, okay. And I actually got him to sign my bass, which is, I never do that. I don't ever, not an autograph collector, but he was so big for me. So was, is, it, like, is he the only one on your bass? Him and Bob Babbitt, before Bob passed away, who oh. was the, uh, he was kind of the Motown guy, but he was, he came after James Jamerson a right. little bit. And, uh, him and Bob Babbitt are the only two autographs I have. Wow, that's an impressive list. Though. <laughs> it was, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, Bob passed away, but uh, he was a great bass player as well. But so I, you know, when I was a teenager, I was really, I, I, I had it, I had this idea that that's what I wanted to do, wow. and I didn't, I probably didn't think it was that realistic. And at this <laughs> point, when you're thinking it, how was your band doing? Well, we played you know through high school we played all the time my, my mom you know was cleaning out my old bedroom a couple of years ago and found a scrapbook that we kept from when we were kids and i and i went i looked back at it a couple of years ago and oh man i had no idea we played this much because it was like every weekend friday saturday we'd have you know for years we had like one or two gigs a weekend wow and do you remember what you thought like did you think that this is i make good money this is a good well, it wasn't really or? big money. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was for a teenager in high school. It was, it was kind of fun. Yeah. It was, you know, fifty bucks, and I forget what we got. I think 
I think we were making 30 or 40 or $50 a night. But, you know, this was in the 70s, yeah, so yeah. It, was, it was what every dance band was making at that time. But, but you thought this could be a career path? Uh, yeah, I was thinking that I wanted to do music for sure. But, you know, I knew that I had to get quite a few steps past, uh, you know, beyond that. I knew that that, that wasn't going to be it. I was going to have to take some chances and try and really work at it, you know. And working at it was just woodshedding on your own? Uh, yeah, a lot, of pra- a lot of practicing. I mean, it came, in different, it came in different stages. I found it, playing in the band, to be honest, a lot of that stuff was fairly easy for me to do on bass. And I really didn't start really digging in and practicing tons. I mean, I guess I probably, I kind of don't remember how much I played back then. It was probably a, f- a few hours every day right. because that was what I was interested in. But taking it really seriously and really digging in kind of came more after I started getting some record calls and I would show up at the session and, you know, I probably thought, oh, I'm, I'm not too bad. But as soon as I started doing sessions, I realized wow, it's pretty hard to play with that click track and it's pretty hard to play in perfect time. And I thought, okay, I'm getting the odd session here or there. I, I better pull it together now. So then I really started. I, I went for maybe a couple of years of practicing any day I was home, probably putting a couple hours a day in with a drum machine, probably for a couple of years. So being on, on time, I guess if that's the right word, um, is that something that one has? Is that something one can easily I think, learn? Or I think you do. I think some people are blessed with great time and don't have to work at it very much. And I think I had okay time, but I really worked at it a lot. And, and you know, I've thought about it. when it comes to your craft and, and playing your instrument, I, I really do believe there's a whole lot of that you kind of play the way you're going to play. You can get a little better. Right. But, you know, to me, a lot of that stuff, you can only get so much better. You can't, you can't become 10 times better than you were when you were a kid. <laughs> okay, so- but you can kind of work on your time. And I found that, that I actually, you, if you put in the, the hours on the, uh, with the metronome and stuff, you can, kind of, you can kind of pull it together. And I, really, I realized that I really had to. And, and, and the goal was to be right on the click? or Well, the goal was to not rush. I mean, everybody's... Your natural natural tendency when you're kind of green, I think, is kind of everybody rushes a bit. It's kind of the race race to the end of the song, I call it. <laughs> Who gets there first? <laughs> but, uh, and you know, you know, Gary Craig probably helped me a lot in that department because he has such great time and he could... And, you know, playing with him... You know, I heard I heard in uh, your podcast with uh, I think it was Wendell. We always used to joke about that. You better be the be the worst guy in the band because yeah. that's how you learn. Right. So you know, I got to play with with Gary on drums, which you know, he was a great drummer, and it really, you, I I really ri- realized right away. Whoa, I got to do a little bit of work here. Um, did it click the first time when you played with Gary? Like, did you know there was? Something? Well, yeah, it it. it it sort of, did. yeah, it did. Although, you know what, I when I first played with Gary, I don't think I was, 
anywhere as nearly as good as I am now. And it, it was probably, it clicks more with everybody else now than it did with one guy back then. Right. Just because, you know, you, you, you get better at what you do. But, but yeah, good. I mean, it, it, it did click great. It was, it, it was easy because he was good and I just I felt like I could just jump on his coattails and ride it through, you know. <laughs> it must be, I can't even imagine what it's like to play with somebody for close to 30 years. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. We know it. We, I know all his fills. I, know, <laughs> I think sometimes we'll do something and it'll be like we will play right out of the blue on a live gig somewhere. We will just play exactly the same fill going in. It's, it's, you know, you, it 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 becomes second nature, I guess. You know. Wow. It's it's uh, it's pretty crazy. So, how did the first studio experience happen? Boy, you know what? I'm trying to think. When I f- first started to do a bit of stuff, it was probably because you had to be pretty good to do this, right? Like. Somebody had to say, hey, well, I need you to come in the studio and play. Yeah, but, you know, it started out, you know, the the band before I started playing with Katie Lang, they were a country band out of Kitchener, and it was the Mercy Brothers. And they were uh, they were kind of a, they were a pretty big deal at the time. They mm. were, you know, one of the top Canadian country acts. But they had also had a recording studio, and they also did a lot of jingles and... Uh, so we would start, some of the first stuff I did was actually working for them doing uh, 20 second jingles for, you know, the Ford dealership or the right. grocery store. And then they would produce the odd person here and there and we'd, we'd play on their records. So it started, sort of started there. And then I really put a lot of time in, in Ottawa. I used to go to Ottawa a lot and uh, I worked with Randall Prescott, who was at this sort of, this would be... This would be mid-80s. And he was kind of the country producer in Canada at the time. He he was he you know, he would have won country producer of the year a few times. And he had a studio up there. And so I would go there a lot and we cut hundreds of tracks up there. And that's that's really where I started to figure out how to play in a studio. How different was your approach to live versus studio back then? Uh, well, you, it's different. You have to, you have to hone in, you know, when the, when the red light comes on, they call it, you know, Mm -hmm. you just, you want to, you want to play it right. And you don't want to hold the session up. You don't want to be making mistakes. You don't want to have other people going, Oh God, you know, who's, what's he here for? Mm -hmm. So it, it, that's where you, I really figured out how to concentrate. And how to get your focus together. Because, you know, all of a sudden one day it just clicked on me that it was like, oh, I can play this song three times in a row and not make a mistake. And and it was, I kind of remember the day where it's like, I realized, oh, it's, it's really just focus. And it's really being able to shut everything else off going on around you. And, you know, you don't lose your place in the chart. There's so many things that can distract you, right? Mm. And when you figure out how to f- how to focus for three and a half minutes, it you f- you feel a little more invincible because you realize, oh, well, I can I can do that again, and I can not mess up that one more time. Okay, so you said charts. So you- we would we would 
I've used pretty much just Nashville number charts forever, which are just, it's uh, just numbers, the numbers of the scale. And uh, in country music, everybody, everybody pretty much uses them. And you were thinking that you would, at this point, you're thinking you were going to be a full-time musician in the country world. Um, yeah, but I, I, I mean, I always thought it didn't have to just be country because the other stuff was fun to me. And, uh, you know, as more of that went on and on, I realized, you know, it was, I wanted to do something else. And that, you know, when, when Katie Lang's gig, when I heard about it coming up, for me, I thought it was perfect because it was country based at that time. She, you know, it was crazy <laughs> cowpunk. I don't know what it was. It was, it was wild, reckless, abandoned country music. But, you know, it, it, it uh, reached over into the pop world. Right. And uh, I thought, this would be, I, I really want this gig. This would be perfect for me because, you know, I've done, I want to branch out a bit. And that was a, a good middle ground for but me That's to not always out. an easy thing to do, right? Because I, I listen to, you know, I've talked to a lot of musicians who are in the blues and they kind of think, well, I need to expand I want to do more or right. whatever. Yeah. But I don't know if it's that easy or if it's a jazz musician, I don't know if they can automatically go to It's tough. It's, yeah. it's tougher, for sure. Uh, although, you know what, I mean, the, the country we were talking about to Colin, you know, the country thing to, to rural blues didn't seem to be a stretch to me. Right. And uh, country to pop music isn't really a stretch. But sometimes blues to pop music is more of a stretch or jazz to right. jazz to pop music is a stretch sometimes so two things one is that you, you talked about being a farmer for a little while yeah so at what point so after school you just you while you were playing music part-time you pers- i i uh in high school we had a weekend band uh five years of high school there were still grade 13 back then and uh but i started taking music in high school and I played alto saxophone for five years in the concert band and the jazz band. And uh, when we were ending my last year there, the music teacher was, you know, so you guys want to apply to Humber or Mohawk? I guess Mohawk was happening. I don't know if it still has a music program. but um, So I applied to Humber and... Uh, but I didn't apply on alto saxophone. I applied on bass. And my music teacher was so, he was kind of f- furious. He goes, why are you not applying on, on alto saxophone? And I said, because I won't get in. <laughs> but he obviously I knew, thought you were good. Yeah, but I knew, I knew that I wasn't. I knew that I couldn't improvise. Because I, I, there was something to me about learning to play saxophone by reading music. And I couldn't make the jump from reading music on, on a saxophone to actually improvising on it. It seemed so far, so alien to me. But on bass, it was exactly the opposite. I could hardly read any music, but I knew how to improvise and I knew how to play a song. I find that so strange. I know. It was, it, <laughs> no one found it stranger than my music teacher. But uh, So I applied on bass and I got in. And so after high school, I did one, I did, I did one semester at Humber. And I thought, uh, I don't know. I, I think partly it was such a focus on jazz, which I, I had a little interest in, but I got to say not a huge interest in. And 
who was the farm boy moving to the city. And it was like, by Christmas, I went, nah, I don't know. I don't think this is for me. So I came home and then I started farming. And I farmed for about, I guess, five years as a full-time farmer, but still had the band on the weekend. Right. And what kind of farming are we talking about? Cash crop. Uh, corn, soybeans, wheat. That's a lot of hard everything. work, right? Yeah, it was a lot of work. We, we worked hard as kids, man. And I was the oldest boy in the family, so as, if you're a farmer, you know, you hope your first child is a boy. <laughs> <laughs> and they because, carry on. Because, well, that's the first guy to help dad on the farm, right? I mean, it's a lot of work and you need to help. So, I, you know, I, we worked really hard as kids. I mean, Okay, so at this point, are you thinking, yes, farming could be my future? Or Well, no? yeah, I, I, I pretended that it was going to be my future for a while. But I, I was still playing music on the weekends. And I still knew... Part of me knew, well, I'm going to, okay, so I, I don't really like going to that school, but I'll come back and I'll farm and I'll, you know, I can make some money for a while while I sort of sit and think about what I want to do. And uh, then it was like, okay, I, you know, I, I took a gig, I tried to get a gig with a recording act and I got the gig and uh, I think then I s- kind of quit farming as soon as I did that, but so I did two or three years on the road with kind of country acts. and uh, Did you love that? I liked the music, but I didn't. Uh, I'll tell you, it was pretty rough at the start. I mean, The I, road. Yeah. There, I, <laughs> we played some gigs that were just... We played this bar in Sault Ste. Marie. And it was such a dive. And we found out after we got there, it was a Hell's Angels bar. And... There was, there was, you know, exotic dancers during the daytime. And we were rooming up there with them and, and the Hells Angels. And it was like there was five people in the bar every night. <laughs> and we sat and played as the one guy walked out the front door and rolled people on the sidewalk for their wallet and then came back in with bloody wrists. And we <laughs> see them going through the guy's wallet. And it was like, I thought... Oh my God, this is, I'm not going to last long at this. And so I was in that band a very short period of time. And I just kept, I just kept leapfrogging as fast as I could to get to a point where, you know, (laughs) I was, it was, we played some horrible dives at the start. Just horrible. But do you look back on that and I mean, it's funny now. (laughs) It's kind of funny now. I look back at it and go, and you know, I'm glad I got out of that. Yeah. Oh, that you could, because I guess some people probably never do. Some, some don't, but you know, I was, uh, you know, I was lucky. A lot of, I mean, I there was a lot of lucky breaks in my life when I look at it, you know. But, you know, it takes a certain amount of talent, but it also takes a certain amount of luck yeah. to get in and out of those things. And I don't know if it's luck as much as just timing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Just... Well, for sure, me getting um, Katie Lang's gig was 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 really great timing i mean i i was there was a lot of lucky things happened luckily i heard about it because you know and that came out of my ottawa connection of of being up in ottawa doing sessions a lot and there was a friend of mine up there goes hey i heard that katie lang's bass player is going to leave and they're looking for a guy and the drummer was uh mish pulio from ottawa and so there was an ottawa connection with the drummer and uh luckily i heard about it and I just cold called them and said, 
and said, you know, uh, this is who I am. And I heard that you guys were looking for a bass player. And the uh, Katie's manager at the time was Larry Wanagas from uh, originally Edmonton, moved to Vancouver. But they didn't know who I was. And I, you know, I, I didn't really expect them to know who I was. So basically they said, well, yeah, okay, we don't really know who you are. But um, if you want to audition, he said, I obviously I can't fly you out. But if you want to get out here yourself, we'll put you up for a couple of nights. And I went, all right. So I just totally took a chance on it. And, That's a big uh, risky chance. It was kind of. But you know, there, there was a there was funny there was a that was a very funny time in my life because I was I remember. I remember it, it. I don't believe in premonitions really, but I knew that as soon as I heard about that gig, I knew I was getting it because something happened. I was kind of depressed with what was what I was doing and who I you know the gigs and but there was one day where I just thought I, I, I literally woke up one morning in a great mood and I went oh something really good's coming and I have no idea what it is <laughs> and it was for two months and I was for two months I was just walking around with a smile on my face no possible reason for it and then when I got the call from this friend of mine in Ottawa that said she was looking for a bass player I went bingo that's it and i i knew that was what was coming that's crazy it was crazy <laughs> and the other crazy thing was i was playing with you interviewed wendell ferguson i was playing on queen street in toronto with wendell uh and we were packing up at the end of the night it was like 1 30 in the morning i was flying out to do the audition the next morning and they're all going, oh, man, good luck. You'll get it. Oh, they're all going, oh, you'll get it. You'll get it. Don't worry about it. And I went, oh, I don't know. I said, it'll be a miracle. And at that exact moment, a, fall, a, 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 shooting star, star. a shooting star went across the sky right in front of all of us. And it was like, wow, this is really <laughs> bizarre. Okay, so you, have this, you wake up one morning and you have this good feeling that something great is going to happen, which is amazing. And I it, think that's amazing. Incredible. Pretty bizarre. But it doesn't happen for two months. No, it's two months. You wake up every morning feeling something's going to happen. And I, you was, don't... I knew something was coming, but I had no idea what it was. And when I got that call, I was like, oh, that's what it is. And so it wasn't a stretch for me to buy my own flight. I thought, oh, well, this is what I got to do. This is what I got to do. Wow. And, then, and, and something like that ever happened since? Never. Never. In my whole entire life, never once. Anything like that. Okay, so you go to Vancouver, you do the audition. Do you do you Well, I, I found it. You know what? And I knew that the bass player had to sing. So, and I got to say, most gigs in my life have come from the fact that I, you know, I can do background harmonies. Not great, but I can get by. <laughs> and uh, so when that gig came up, when I found out about that gig, I said, okay, I think I can play the bass. And get away with it, but I, I better work on my singing. So I went in to the University of Western Ontario, uh, London, and got a vocal coach and did a couple months of lessons. Oh. Just so, you know, I thought, well, I'll do whatever I can to make sure I'm not going to mess this up. And, uh, but I was so freaked out. By the time I got to Vancouver to do the audition, I had been singing so much, I had almost lost my voice. <laughs> and, so I did the first day of auditions, and I could hardly sing at all. And they said, oh, I said, you know, I said, sorry, I've been practicing a lot, and I kind of blew my voice out. 
And uh, they said, that's okay. Well, come back tomorrow. Go, go back, get, get some sleep. Come back tomorrow and we'll do another, we'll, we'll have you back in tomorrow again. So I figured, okay, well, I've made it through to the second day of auditions. And Were you happy, other than the voice, were you happy with your playing and the way you yeah, I th- Yeah, more or less, but I was really kind of like, it was like, oh, geez, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose, I'm going right. to blow this because I can't sing. So that night, go back. Of course, I'm wound. I don't sleep at all that night, hardly. And then go back the next day. Anyway, I, I ended up getting the gig. And, you know, they, in, in hindsight, they said, well, there was better bass players and there was better singers, but there wasn't better singing bass players. So, I mean, I, you know, I yet one more gig in my life that I've got because I can sing some harmonies, you know. Now, I, I don't know at what level she's at at this point in her career, but is this a, it was, a major step up for you? Oh, huge. Yeah, yeah, huge. She was taken off. It was, I called that three years that I spent with her, I called it riding the rocket ship to stardom because it was like every week was some unbelievable new thing. I mean, I got to do every TV show that I've ever dreamt of doing. I mean, we did Saturday Night Live. Right. Uh, we played on the Grammys. We won the Grammy for the record that I played on. So it was like, it was like, I was, it was unbelievable times for me. It so was, when you go through something like that, how do you view that? Like, obviously, because all of a sudden things are just going really well. Yeah. And, and part of me would say, oh my God, this is a little scary because things are going too well. <laughs> but how did well, you look at it? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know what? When it was happening, I knew that I was extremely lucky and I knew that I shouldn't take it for granted. So I, I really remember those three years going, just kind of going, take a deep breath, just breathe, just take it all in because this is a once in a lifetime ride, you know? And I knew that and I, and I never let it, I never let it think that I was going to be able to stay at that level because, you know, for me, those kind of gigs, they come around once in your life, you know? But while you're living it for three years, though, I mean, isn't it easy to just get caught up and think, yeah. I'm never going to play Sault Ste. Marie? And... Well, it's hard to come. It's, I, never, I, don't, I don't think I ever took it for granted. And I always knew, okay, this is going to end. I'm sure this is going to end someday. And uh, so I just tried to be realistic and think, I'm going to have a good time while this is happening. And when this is over... It's going to be rough. <laughs> I'm going to have to figure out what the hell I'm going to do next. That would worry me. But yeah, worry it. Yeah, that's the life of a musician. That's constantly, that's what you go through, I think. When is this good time going to end, you know? Right. And can I ask how it ended? How does something like that well, end? Well, it ended with her kind of letting most of the band. We, we, um, I started touring when on, um, oh, the Shadowland the uh, Owen Bradley produced Shadowland right. with all the classic country stuff. I started that tour and uh, it, w- it was really great stuff going on. And then we'd only toured two months and she goes, okay, I don't want to tour this record anymore. I want to make my own record. And it was like, whoa, I was going, I remember going, whoa, we just got going here. What do you mean you want to stop touring this record? And because, you know, everybody tours a record for a year. Mm. And I know it pissed, probably pissed a record company off. But to her foresight, you know, she thought making that record with Owen Bradley, she really wanted to do it. 
But as soon as that was done and out and she did some stuff, she went, I have to get back to what I want to do. I don't want, I don't want this to be my Mm -hmm. thing that everyone thinks I'm I'm doing. It's going to be different than this. So we only toured two months and then they wanted to stop and make another record. And I thought, Oh geez, I've only been in the band two months. What the heck? You know, am I going to, first thing I'm thinking, is anybody going to ask me to be on the next record? And, and, uh, I did get on the next record, most of it, and Dave Pilch played the upright, and I played the electric. So then we, that was Absolute Torch and Twang, and then we toured that for quite a while. And uh, where were we going with this question? (laughs) So how did it end, basically? It ended up by when the Torch and Twang tour was done. Uh, You know, everybody tours for a year and then takes a year off, makes another record. So she basically kind of let everybody go and said that was when she said my next record's going to be a pop record and so she cleaned house almost everybody a couple of guys stayed ben ben mink stayed because he was uh producing it right and the steel player stayed but everybody else you know it was that's what artists do they want to change and you know everybody does it i, I would you know i was i would have loved to stayed on but you know i got it I understood. Okay, so when you decide when you when you're told that that's you're not going to stay on, what's your thinking and what is your plan? Do you have a plan that says what I'm going to no do? No plan. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you, that's when you sit up at night and wonder if everyone anyone's ever going to hire you again. Actually, after that tour, after those three years with KD, was it? There was it was a really tough year after that because okay. I because all my friends that I played with before that were at. You know, it was not at that level. So when I'd been away for so long, A, people either, A, they say, oh, he's probably not around. Right. Or B, they go, oh, he won't want to play with us. Right. And so the first year was, was real tough. So are you not playing with anybody other than Katie Lang for those three years? Like you yeah. don't have any time on your own? You know what? Not much. Okay. It was pretty full on. And you know what? When I come home, if you were out for five weeks and home for a week, I wasn't really looking for work. I was, I just wanted to yeah. shut it down for a week because it was, you know, it was pretty, pretty grueling, a lot of work. What did you learn from that experience of touring at that level? That it's nice to keep touring at that level. <laughs> <laughs> on, on every level, right? Like it's the venues you play, the places you stay, the way you travel. Yeah, it was, in hindsight now, it was, I mean, it was, it was regular touring. It wasn't, it wasn't extravagant. Um, but for me at that time, it, it seemed like it was, you know, and uh, yeah, great. You know what, we weren't, we were, when we started that, we were playing kind of in concert clubs, like, you know, like what would be the Alma Combo here mm-hmm. or those kind of places. And then it was pretty soon into theaters, but what I remember about that run, actually, though, was that the, the audiences were so great because they were just, they were rabid to see her because yeah. it was such a, at the start, it was such an underground thing, you know, and it would be, uh, hey, there's this new girl, this Katie Lang chick, she's wild, you know, <laughs> and so everybody would want to come out and see the show and it was like so many standing room onlys and, and uh, just the crowds were insane. Did it surprise you that you go through a tour and you're part of this thing that's growing that do you not automatically think you've put three years into this that maybe somebody say, hey, 
he was with Katie Lang, we should get him. Whereas yeah. I don't know if it makes a difference. No, it does. It, 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 it elevates your cachet a bit, for sure. Okay. And it, it did make it, you know, it, it, it puts you on a, on a little better level. But, you know, mostly what comes out of that is that the people you meet... I mean, it's such a business of, of who you know. Right. And uh, so, you know, if you got something like that, it just, it, it lets you hang out with, uh, I don't know how, what the right word to say it is, but you, you meet people who, you know, who are, who are successful yeah. as well that you, you know, that, that can get you good work, you know, or you, people you want to play with. Or, I mean, with that gig, it was like that gig, with Ben Mink, put me on to Colin, who put me on to Bruce Coburn. And uh, it's it's just, you know, it's that evolution of, of who you know. How do you, you how do you manage not to spoil yourself? Like if you work with Katie Lang and Colin Linden and Bruce Coburn, like is it easy to say, well, I don't want to work with these people who are less known or... No, and, and you know what? It's, there's all, for me... I don't say no to a whole lot, although I've said no to more things later. I really think it's just because I'm getting older more than I'm spoiled right. or whatever. You can always have fun. You know, you can have fun playing with just about anything. You know, if it's as long as it's the group of people are fun, you know, and that's always what I've found is like you don't really want to play with people that you don't want to hang out with either. Right. So it's, it's you know, it's always a. Uh, you know, I can have lots of fun just playing a small club with almost nobody there. If the band is fun and if it's a bunch of people you like hanging out with, that's all that really matters, you know. Which is which is a concept that's somewhat not difficult for me to understand, but I can I can see that if you've played in big halls, you know, in front of thousands of people who love what you do, then it would it's hard to imagine going to Grossman's and playing a gig. Yeah, you know what. After the first big tour, it was a little bit like that. But then after you go, after you go back and forth so many times, it's like you it, you just become used to it. It's like, well, I remember. Uh, well, I was playing this funny little country gig after in the middle of a maybe in the middle of a Katie thing. We had just done the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, <laughs> and we were playing this little Legion Hall in Brantford or something. And the drummer goes. You know, I bet you there's not one person in this room that would believe you were in the Johnny Carson show on sa- on Friday night and you're here on Saturday night. <laughs> it was like, but you know, that's that's just life, you know. Yeah. And it, it it was a little strange at the start, but you know, over the years you just you just accept it as the way it is. It's the way this business is. You yeah. Know? Um, and I also think that it's the love of playing. Like I just yeah. think that there are certain musicians who I've met who I consider to be legends but they only became legends because they love what they do and i think they would have played constantly even if it, they never made it yeah yeah no i mean I, I think i think you're right there's uh you have to like playing the music still and that's what i think drives you especially later in life for for me it's like uh you just want to still play and you want to make good music you know so and, when you went through that adjustment period, let's yeah, call yeah. it, how did you? How did that work itself out? Was it because you met Colin and 
different opportunities came or was there something else? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, you just have to kind of cultivate, you just hope something else through your list of contacts, you just hope one of those things starts to pay off and, and get you busy again, you know. But do you call people and say, hey, I'm available? Or Yeah, you kind of do after a few months of being scared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you sort you of, it's funny, you know, it's like you don't want to, I've never liked being that guy who's phoning everybody going, hey, you know, I'm not working right now. If you need a guy, it's, I, you start, I'm a, a really shitty self-promoter, but at some point you sort of have to do that, you know? And also the fact that what you lean. said before, like there were probably a lot of people who would love to work with you, but not consider calling you because think they might think you're busy and... Yeah. Yeah, when you leave town for three years, it's like, <laughs> yeah, people forget your back for sure. It gets It's not easy. Okay, so what did you learn from that period of the not easy period and having to kind of readjust? Was there a lesson to be learned there? Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I've I've just kind of gone through life. <laughs> Sometimes you you just got to sit around and wait for somebody to call, you know? And it's like I guess you learn how to put up with the weight more, you know, how right. to and not you have to learn how to not worry and not think that you're never going to work again. Right. And you have to come to terms with, well, okay, I'm probably going to work again. Even when you work with people like Colin and Bruce, do you still have those doubts? I'm having them right now because we just, Bruce's tour just ended. And for the last few years with Colin, we've been touring with the the Nashville, the TV show. I don't know if you knew. So that that was huge, right? Like, didn't you? It was huge. Yeah. It was massive. Did you not go to Europe? It went to Europe and we played like three shows at Royal Albert Hall. And uh, (laughs) last year we went back and we played the O2, which is like, the biggest yeah, yeah. room on the planet. So is that show that big in Europe? It was huge. I had no idea. The show was bigger in Europe, I think, than in America. How, so how much were you involved in the actual show? Were you on? A, no, I oh. wasn't involved in the actual show at all. Colin okay. was heavily right. involved. Played on a lot of the music for it. And he was also the music supervisor for the TV show. But um, speaking of touring at a level like that, that tour I, I was that was touring at a level that i've never seen before and it was like i, I sort of one day joking he said this is the best highest end tour i've ever seen and all the singers are actors <laughs> i mean they're good singers yeah, yeah. they're very good singers they're better singers than a lot of the people you work with who are singers wasn't it a big deal when they canceled the show like didn't well it was a big yeah there was a lot of you know they got another two years out of the show yeah. after abc canceled the show uh it came back in syndicate it came back in not in syndication it's not the right word it, it got picked up by cmt and it got picked up by a big streaming site hulu or something right. you know, i don't know anything about that yeah. but that got them two more years but that was uh so that tour ended in the spring and then we were working with bruce and so it's like you know, I'm, I'm, and, I, and it's like you, you're at the age now where I'm older. I go, well, the last few years were great, but you know, what in these thirty, I'm doing the same thing. I'm going, well, I don't know what's coming up next. Wow. I mean, it'll it'll still be Colin stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't see that ever. I think that band will be together till we're all dead. You know? <laughs> yeah. Because sure. uh, it's such a great camaraderie. But you know, you have to have a few things. You have to have a few things going at the same time. I've always said you have to be in five bands at once to make a living. 
But okay, so if Colin's not doing anything, or if he's doing solo stuff, or he's producing stuff, then how does it work in terms of if he decides that he's going to go on the road uh, next March or whatever? Like, does he tell you, yeah. hey, can you block off this time? Yeah, that's what he'll do. Okay. Yeah, and uh, you know, blocking the Rodeo Kings, I think, sounds like we may fire up again. Uh, this talk of maybe doing another record, so that will probably fire up next year I hope and um, I also play with Tom Wilson in his original stuff and right. and sometimes with Lee Harvey Osmond which is his offshoot of that band so you know so I'm surprised that you, you're not I mean I presume there are times in your career that you have to turn away gigs because yeah. you might be working with Tom yeah for Tom. sure lots lots of times that if, must just kill you <laughs> not you know what not only if you're turning you know what it's if you're booked for three weeks on the road and you have to turn down a one-nighter then that's no big deal uh but it's it it it's not fun to have to turn down something really great that can be kind of long term if it just doesn't line up and yeah those those ones kind of hurt they'll sting a little bit but did you ever think that you would like to start your own band no not once. <laughs> because? Well, I'm not a singer. Right. I don't ever... I've, there's not one bit of me that wants to be a front man. Like, uh, you know, the artists have a... Artists have a five-year shelf life, you know. <laughs> Which... And I and, and most of it... I mean, I've... I would... I feel so bad for artists because as a sideman, you can just go from one gig to the other. If somebody's career is up, right. you just hope to find somebody else to play with. And I always think the sideman thing for for I I love it because there's you know you can go as long as as you feel like going. But an art as an artist, I mean, they most of them I know they get they get pushed out way before they want to be pushed out. You know, and if you're an artist who's lost their record deal, it's like God, you know, you can't they can't do like I can do. And go play the Legion Hall the next week. You just, they just can't do that. <laughs> because it's like, well, you know, sorry. How about starting a band? Was that ever... No. I, had, I wanted none of the responsibility of any of that stuff. <laughs> I, I just wanted... I, I don't know if I'm lazy. I just never wanted any of that responsibility. I wanted somebody to send me the songs. I'll learn them and I'll come and do your gig. Okay, That's so all what, that ever interests me was really. But at that. what point did that did you establish that being your working pattern? As soon as like, by the time you had joined Katie Lang's band. Yeah, even before, even when I went on the first my first road gig with, I never really wanted to play cover songs. I was out from my first my first professional band was a recording artist. Right. And that was all that it really interested me. And it came out, I think it came out of, you know, me saying that I sit there and I wanted to play on records. So for me, it was always, I wanted to do original music. And I don't, I don't know if I thought this back then, but maybe in the back of my head, I was thinking, well, if I play with an original artist, maybe I can play on the record. I mean, I don't know if I was thinking that far ahead right. or not. But I was just wanted to, I wasn't interested in playing uh, songs from the radio, like the, without it'd be in the original artist I don't know what about writing songs mm, not very good at that 
I tried. I got, I got, I've got a couple of little co-writes, but basically I could maybe come up with some musical ideas, but lyrically I realized I would love to be able to write songs because I think it's, it's, it's such a cool thing to be able to do, mm-hmm. but I have zero ability as, as a lyricist. It's just, it's not in me. It just doesn't come out. Okay, so now you've worked with some great artists, and that, you know, to me, somebody like Bruce Coburn is yeah. like way up there. The greatest songwriter. Yeah, like he's one of the Canada, Canada's greats for sure. So when you're sitting in the studio with him, and he does some of the things that he's done, and he's, you've worked on what five albums? Probably, albums? I was gonna uh, five or six records, probably. Yeah. So you've probably experienced some amazing moments, and oh yeah, it's like the you know. His songs are, the songs are just so great. Yeah. And uh, in a lot of ways, easy to play on. I mean, I've always found out over the years of playing in the studio, it's really difficult to come up with a good bass part if the song's not very good. It's like, <laughs> you know, and the, if it's a great song, it's just easy to come up with a part for. And do you know the moment? Sometimes. Sometimes it's first, you know, a lot of times it's first or second take. And I've had, uh, some songs are hard. I mean, some of them take a lot of work and some of them just come really fast. I've had, I've cut songs where literally the drummer is counting it in and I'm looking at the chart and I, it's, my brain is completely blank. I, the drummer's (laughs) counting it in and I'm going, I have not one idea what I am going to play on this song. Not a clue. And and we'll start playing, and it's like, oh, there it is. Okay. And it's like, once in a while, your first track, your first pass will be like kind of perfect. But until they started playing, you had no idea what you are going to play. That's such a... Like, it's this concept that I just find so difficult to comprehend because I don't play music, but just... That you could start a song, not know where you're gonna go, and I know, then it's, just get there. <laughs> you know what? And sometimes it even it even to me sometimes it's surprising, because on that rare occasion where you don't have any idea what you're gonna play and and you're really happy with it when it's done, it's like even I go, well, I don't really know where that came from, but I squeaked one out, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then, but then some songs are just a lot of work, you know. I've heard musicians or songwriters talk about some of the best songs just come through them, whereas I, yeah. others that they have to work on for 10 years are usually not the better songs. I hear, I hear that a lot from... I've, you know what? I've worked with lots of songwriters in my life, and I hear that a lot. It's like a lot of them will say, man, some of the best songs I wrote, I wrote in 15 minutes. You know, Which is so weird. I know. Well, it's, it's like that... It's that flow of the flow of energy. Just they just they just hit that day where the stars aligned and that song just come flying out of them. You know. So have you? Let's say with with somebody like Bruce or even with Colin, when when they write some amazing songs, other times when you hear it for the first time, think this is a special song. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, yeah. When you when you're in the studio and you hear the song and they'll you know you'll hear it once or twice before you go to cut it and 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 sometimes you just go oh man you just you just know that's that is a great song and and sometimes you go some and sometimes you just go well that's going to be a hit you just know that's going to be a hit because it's just so darn good. 
Have you played on many hits? I played on a lot of country stuff that were hits. Yeah. And what's that like to you when you hear it? I love hearing it on the radio. It's it's one of my it's the biggest joy. It's because uh, I mean right back to you know being a teenager. That's what I thought back then I wanted to do. And when you actually can do it and you hear it on the radio and you like the way your bass sounds or you like, you know, you like the feel, it's like, it's a, it's a great feeling because to be able to create something that, you know, people like is, is, you know, Mm -hmm. satisfying and it's uh, rewarding. Especially a great song because we were talking about the importance of songs and it constantly comes up. But I just think, that's it's so difficult to write a great song yeah but to be part of that great song must be such an amazing feeling yeah it is you know um one of the really early albums colin produced was a john bottomley record john has since passed but there was a pop hit on that there was a there was a one song that was a, a radio hit like even back sort of much music days there was a hit and uh it's just so rewarding to hear that stuff. And John was also a fantastic songwriter. And those songs, those songs, I swear to God, every song in that record played itself. I didn't have to think about anything. And uh-huh. when you get those great songs, I mean, songwriter's king. Yeah, for you sure. Know? Um, with, the, with the greatest great artists that you've worked with, is there anything about them that's consistent that, you look at Katie Lang or Bruce Coburn or Colin or Tom and think they are at where they are because of this quality or uh yeah it's a it's um it's like a ferocious commitment or something you know with uh with Katie especially it was like you just that it's a star quality thing and you know some people have a stark have that that star quality and it's a, it's a it's a really intangible thing to you, you can't put your finger on exactly what it is but man when when those people take the stage they own the stage right and uh you know there's you can't they captivate people they have a they people focus on them and it's it's just it's that star quality thing that's i don't i don't know what you call it but they all those people you just mentioned kind of have that you know it's like well there's no no denying that katie was going to be a star you know because she just owned the stage do you ever lose yourself on stage watching this happen in front of your eyes i know that. uh yeah you do you do sort of i mean KD would make the hair stand up on the back of my neck like every night. Wow. It was just like, because it was so, it was so powerful and it was so great. And uh, those artists can drag the band up to their level. You know, it's like you'd, everybody, when that's going on on stage, whether it's her or Bruce or Tom or whoever it is, uh, it's so good that it, it makes you play better. It makes the band sound better. Uh, everyone pulls up their socks and everybody, you know, yeah. there's always, there's that element of you can't be screwing around now. It's like, this is serious business going on. <laughs> no time for screwing around. 
But okay, so on the other hand, there's always the example of those guys you see and think, oh man, they're really good, but they never make it. Well, yeah. I mean, there must be play, people you've played with that yeah. you thought were pretty special. But there for, for whatever sure reason. Is. And I won't name names, but one of them that I worked for, fantastic singer, but never, um, they didn't connect with the crowd. Right. Um, you have to, when you're standing on stage, you have to be able to break down, like you have to break down that wall between you and the audience. And some people just don't do it. And some people don't break through. But uh, can't maybe? Yeah, you know, maybe too introverted, maybe. I don't mm. know. I, they just... Um, people would... I, I would hear this from the crowd. People would say, I didn't really feel like I connected. With, they didn't really feel like they connected with me. Right. You know, and you, you really have to... To be a success, successful front person, I think, you have to break down that wall and you have to let... Everybody has to feel like they get to know you, Right. Because you can't just go and hear somebody sing a song. Mm. They want to. You have to suck those people in more, and they have to feel like you engage them. You know. I'm I'm going to wrap this up, but if I was to ask you, what's the greatest thing you've learned on this amazing journey that you had? What's amazing? I've learned. Well, you have to. Uh, you have to focus. You have to. You have to give it your all. You know. You you uh, you have to. Uh, you have to try hard. You know. You can't. Uh, you can't just mail it in. You gotta. You know. You gotta. You have to. You have to try your darndest to do a good job. You know. Because people that. rely on you to. Uh, to back them up, and you you have to do your best you can do. You know. But you realized that pretty quickly, right? When you said you uh, you went into yeah. the studio and realized that you weren't yeah. where you should be. Yeah, and being in a band's different. You know, you have to. There's there's other things, but you have to. You have to try your darndest to do a good job. You know, you can't let those people down. Right. You know. When I when I spoke to Kevin Bright, and I said, "What's made? Why do people constantly hire you to do studio work?" And he said, I'm not the best, but I might be the nicest. So you have to be nice. Well, that's, yeah. Which I found fascinating, but it makes total sense because you don't want to be hanging out with somebody no. who isn't. No, I mean, that, and you know what? I always, I think people, most people think that I'm easy to get along with and that I'm, you know, fun on the road. And, uh, you know, you can't, be a, you can't be a downer on the road or that nobody wants to hang out with you. Right. Is that <laughs> any different than in the studio? Like, I presume the same it, rules apply. Yeah, uh, you know what? Not as much, but you still, you know, if you're the guy in the studio that lightens it up and makes everybody have a good time, you know, yeah. and can still deliver the job, then you're going to get hired, you know. Um, you got to be really good to be a prick and keep getting work. <laughs> you got to be the best. <laughs> Otherwise, no. Do you still love what you do? Yeah. I still love, yeah, I, I, I still love studio. I still love playing live. Um, I, I, you know, the studio is a special place, really. I, it's, it, you know, if I had to take one, if I had to take one only, I would probably take the studio. Wow. Yeah. 
I want to thank you. As I said, I've wanted to meet you and interview you for a long time. And the fact that I've been able to do this is, is huge. So I really appreciate you coming oh, well, over and doing this. You know what? This. It's been fun, and, and I really appreciate you asking me. It's like I don't really, I don't do these things very <laughs> often, and I, I'm out of my comfort element. But I had, I had, it was fun. I had a good time. Oh, good. Well, yeah. thank you so much for well, doing Well, thank you. Yes. Yeah.